From our headquarters in New York City, this is Business of Home. I'm your host, Dennis Scully. Every week, I'll be talking to leaders and innovators from all corners of the home industry. My guest this week is designer and author Sheila Bridges. Sheila started her career in fashion, but soon found her true calling in interiors, where she rose to prominence as the host of one of the first television shows dedicated to high-end design. Over the span of two decades, she authored several books, worked with celebrity clients, including former President Bill Clinton, and created the renowned pattern Harlem Toile de Jouy. We spoke about emerging from a difficult period, diversity and inclusion in the design world, and why relationships are often the most important part of the business. Starting this week, we're going to be introducing a new kind of sponsor message. Business of Home is partnering with digitally savvy custom workroom Build Lane and interior designer Bella Mancini to discuss the ins and outs of creating unique furniture. This week, we'll be hearing from Build Lane founder Frank Ibsen. Stay tuned for more. This podcast is also sponsored by Daydon, the luxury furniture brand that changed the way we live outdoors. For 30 years, Daydon has set the standards for quality, creativity, and innovation in outdoor design. Created in collaboration with world-renowned designers, including Gam Fratesi, Philippe Stark, and Barbara and Oscarby, to name a few. Each piece of Daydon handwoven furniture is the synthesis of age-old hand craftsmanship and cutting-edge technology. Visit www.daydon.us to learn more. That's D-E-D-O-N.us. And now, on with the show. So, Sheila, shall we start? Yes. With please. Sheila Bridges attending Brown University. Brown was my first choice, and I loved Brown. That was one of the best times of my life, I have to say. So, yeah. so it was a very happy time. Yeah, and- it was a really happy time. I think that just initial independence from, you know, I mean, from your parents and family, a new city, new friends. Yeah. And at the time you thought that advertising was where you thought you might go. I did. I mean, I think in the the 80s and sort of the early and mid 80s when I was in school, advertising had sort of, you know, sort of taken the world by storm. And, you know, I remember reading all these books, um, uh, you know, Ogilvy and Mather and J. Walter Thompson, Ray Advertising, you know, there were all these big firms. And, you know, for me, I, I was always a creative person, but I wanted to be in business. And I didn't really know what businesses were creative, but mm-hmm. I knew that advertising was. And so I thought, you know, this will allow me to combine, you know, sort of my creativity along with a legitimate, you know, interesting sort of fast paced business. But, you know, I couldn't get a job. <laughs> I couldn't get a job. <laughs> you couldn't get a job in, in advertising. After, yeah, after I couldn't you get a job in advertising yeah. after I graduated from Brown. So instead you came to New York Correct. So the advertising thing didn't work out and I didn't really have a backup plan and I didn't want to live at home in Philadelphia with my parents. Mm. And so the only thing that I had uh, previous experience with was retail and fashion. I had worked in clothing stores Mm -hmm. when I was younger, also in college And so I decided to take that route, which at the time, there were a lot of really good training programs in New York to become a fashion buyer. So and so I got, you know, 
a job at Bloomingdale's in their training in the program. Management training program. Yeah, to become a fashion buyer. And I was so miserable. Oh my <laughs> goodness. I hated that job so much. It was a lot of schlepping things and sure. running around and stock and dealing with customers and yeah, it was not really what what I had hoped for, I guess. It, now, what had you imagined it was going to to be? In I the don't know. Training I think I probably <laughs> naively thought that I was going to be, you know, picking out, you know, and setting fashion trends or something. You'd be planning out no the idea. fall line. Yeah, I'd yeah. Be, yeah, yeah. I'd yeah. be planning out the fall <laughs> line, the private label uh, for yeah. you know Bloomingdale's, and uh, you know, I have no idea. But it was, you know, it was a lot of crisis management. I mean, there were a lot of moving parts arts to retail. Mm. You know, again, in retrospect, I think it was amazing training. Um, I mean, I think most of the, you know, sort of top executives in the fashion industry, a lot of them did their training. Oh, absolutely. At, it, at, it used at, to be how everyone it, it was, in the Yeah, got how started. you really, yes. you know, got to be those senior level uh, positions um, in the industry. But I ended up leaving Bloomingdale's and ended up working on the whole side. Somewhat whole abruptly, side if I recall. Of well, I don't know about how abruptly. Oh, yeah, I... <laughs> Maybe quit my job. Ultimately, I felt like I needed to do something else. And it didn't help that actually the vice president of men's where my boss at the time kept telling me that he was, he just kept saying to me, why are you here? You should be doing something else. You should be doing something else. You shouldn't be here. You so in, be doing a, in, a, in a nice way, in a was really he sort nice of like, way. like, you're yeah. so much better and, than yeah. this and it you need to get silly, out. silly, but he okay. just kept, and he would always be, tell people if they came to the office, Sheila went to Brown. Sheila's really oh, smart. Right. You know, it was just funny. And not to say, of course, there's a lot of people in the fashion industry who are extremely smart, Right. but it was just funny. He just, used to pull me into his office and say, like, you should be doing something else. Mm. So I think at that point, I I started taking some classes in design. It was just something I was sort of interested in, I think. And I found back then, you know, we looked for jobs in the classifieds in the New York Times. That was how... In the Sunday paper? Yeah, in the Sunday New York Times. That <laughs> was how most people, you know, got their jobs. So I will never forget, there was an ad for small, prestigious architectural firm seeks administrative assistant. And so I applied for the job and I actually didn't get the job. And I was so bummed out that I didn't get the job. But then they called me back a couple of weeks later and said it wasn't working out with the person that oh, they hired very okay. quickly. <laughs> now I know, you know, designers are very quick to know whether or not something's going to work. And so I still hadn't uh, gotten a job. So I went to work there and that was Shelton Mandel and yes. Associates. So and very prestigious were, indeed. They, as it they were, out. yes, they yes. were a small, prestigious yes. um, architectural firm right. for sure. And it was, you know, I loved my job. I, um, I felt like I learned so much. And, you know, for the first time, I felt like I'm doing something that I could see myself doing for a really long time. I felt like I was working with such smart and interesting people who were really creative and great problem solvers. It was a, you know, our office was, a, it was a pretty, you know, fun environment. Mm. And yeah, so I just felt like I was a sponge, you know, during my time there. And, you know, all the sort of non-architectural, uh, particularly kind of the, the decorating or design things that some of the architects didn't you know, want to necessarily deal with, I feel like got thrown at me or thrown on my desk. And, you know, a lot of that was, you know, returning samples and, you know, all those kinds of things, but also, you know, 
learning about how to prepare an invoice or a purchase order or right. you really got to how to write side. how to write a memo to a vendor or you know get a quote on something um i also was sort of in charge of all of the editorial things that that came out of the office so at that point in time it was slides i mean people you know were still shooting on film <laughs> and uh so you know if i had to send a package out you know let's say we we had a project that was photographed and and we wanted it to go to, you know, House Beautiful or House and Garden or El Decor, one of the magazines. I was sort of the person who, you know, had to get those packages ready and, you know, certainly cultivated relationships with a lot of the editorial staffs at a lot of those magazines. So, you know, so I actually, you know, when I was in my 20s, I became friends with Dara Caponegro because she oh, was an editorial assistant at favorites. that time at House Beautiful when um, Lou Gropp was editor in chief. Right. You know, but she was the person who I would send the slides to. So I think, you know, sort of an important lesson learned, which I always try to, you know, explain to young people starting out is about, about relationships and how important they are in the industry and about not burning bridges and mm. because you never know where people are going to be one day. And so for me, when I when I eventually was out on my own and I finally had a project that I thought was potentially worthy of being in a magazine, you know, Dara was the first person that I reached out to. And she was extremely responsive because, you know, of the of relationship, the relationship. Yeah. That, that we had had and had cultivated, you know, over that period of time when we were, you know, in our early 20s or mid 20s. It, it is such an important lesson to to try and share with young people that are starting out in your office and sort of reminding them that you never know where this person's going to go. So in the case of Dara, for example, she would go on to become one of the most important editors in the industry right, exactly. at multiple publications at various right. times. And then her position at Schumacher. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah. No. So, so you, you just, you just, don't know. And our industry is very small. Our industry <laughs> is too small right? at times. Yes. So. so keep up those good relations. It's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. So it sounds like you had a great experience working at, at Shelton Mindell. And I did, uh, for the most part. Um, yes. I know there were some, y- some challenges y- that yeah, we can gloss were, over. Yeah, but, sure. but, you know, I think there's challenges everywhere, particularly right. when you're young. It's very different. And those Once two you, partners were very different yes, in a lot of Yes, exactly. Right. Exactly. So, yes. and then I left there, went to a firm of another small firm, but it was very, very different. It was real sort of New York uh, Fifth Avenue decorator. That was Rennie Saltzman Mm. Interiors, uh, the late Rennie Saltzman and completely different office. But, you know, that was much more, you know, that was not particularly architecturally driven, but it was, you know, a lot of interiors where, you know, you had the wallpaper match the bedspread, match the bed skirt, match the ruffles on the, you know, I don't know, the uh, lampshades. I mean, you know, and they match the draperies and um but you know he was published very regularly in architectural yes. digest and his wife was fashion director of bergdorf goodman so mm. um you know for me there was still that like fashion connection i guess on a level so i also learned a lot there but it was you know it was a very very different from my experience at shelton mandel but finally, I decided, you know, it was time for me to go out on my own. I had a potential new client. And uh, once I actually got that job and secured that one client, I sort of jumped ship. You were ready. I was ready. I don't know if I was ready or not, yeah. but I decided 
you know, what the heck? Let's, I don't, what do, do I it. have to lose? Yeah. And let's go for it. Yeah. And in the beginning, it was just you and correct, right? And taking it was on just this project. me, and I worked from home, and you know, just trying to make sure that I managed to do this within my means and uh, didn't kind of overextend. So no, there was no fancy office or staff mm. or anything like that. So um, that's how you know, kind of, I slowly built my my business, and you know, over time, I obviously hired people, and then eventually moved out into a proper office on the Upper East Side on Madison Avenue. But then eventually came back home and I work from home, you know, now. You work from home now. Yeah. yeah. But but for a time, your your business sort of really took off. Correct. And, yeah. Right? And yeah, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think I probably had, I mean, the largest I ever was in terms of numbers, in terms of um, staff. I mean, I think maybe... I forget, six or seven people mm-hmm. kind of in my office. And then when I had my television show, that was a staff of like seven people or six people and two interns. So, you know, I had sort of two staffs that I was sort of dealing with at the time, at that point in time. And so it was a lot to juggle. It was a lot to juggle. Yes. Yeah, yes. Absolutely. And, and it was quite stressful. It was stressful, <laughs> but it's always stressful, isn't it? <laughs> We're taking a quick break from the show to hear from Frank Ibsen, the founder and CEO of BuildLane. So, Frank, how do you describe what BuildLane does to interior designers? This might sound crazy, but we're making building custom furniture easy for interior designers. And help me understand what that really means. So designers are familiar with the archaic process of sourcing custom furniture from a factory. It's a huge headache. They can't get a hold of anybody. They don't know what's going on with their order. We're putting everything online. So a designer comes to us, they log into our web app, they can request quotes, they see their orders as they go through production, what's needed from them, and then when it's done, they get to see finished photos. So the entire transaction can happen online through your site. It seems crazy, but it also seems not crazy, right? This is something that the industry <laughs> this should, is have, the future, should have had Frank. a long time ago, right? Exactly. Yes. There you have it. If you'd like to try it for yourself, head over to buildlane.com BOH and create your free designer account to receive $250 off your first order. And now, back to the show. Well, so, and remind listeners, so you were you were one of sort of the earlier pioneers. That is true. Right? I was definitely one of the first designers to have my own television yeah. show about interior design. And they wanted somebody who really was, you know, in the thick of it and a real designer, a working designer. So it was really was kind of carved out to be about, you know, my life in design. Right. Which turned out to be part of the big challenge was you had to maintain this very active, Correct. right? Yeah, life I mean, so that you know, business. you got to be careful what you what you wish for. And I had never had any interest really on being uh, on television or or thought about having my te- my own show. But I was approached about it. It was actually soon after nine eleven, and you know, two thousand and one that had happened, and that was devastating to me both personally but also professionally. Part of that decision to do that was was a financial one. Design business suddenly got slow and, you know, this was a way for me to kind of fill in the gap and and also just, you know, be open to a different opportunity mm. and see, you know, just 
kind of where where it would take me and what doors it would open. But it was a little bit of a double-edged sword because I think at the time, most of my clients were very, very high-end. I think for them, you know, the idea that I was sort of on television and doing the show was sort of taking away from the time that I was spending on, you know, their projects. The other thing is it sort of made me very accessible in a different way, which was for the viewers who were not necessarily, you know, the kind of people who could uh, afford my design services, you know, I think it was great for them to get ideas and be inspired, but it also meant that we were bombarded with potential projects that you know, had a budget of, you know, $3,000 or $5,000. And while there's absolutely nothing wrong with that, you know, that's not really where my niche was and what I was really doing. So that, you know, that, that was challenging to sort of navigate at that time. And you sort of became a, a celebrity and, and there were some, some challenges around that. Yeah, I don't know if I would call myself sure. a celebrity. I don't know. I guess I'm a design, of a design world, a design world yes. celebrity, which is a little yes. teeny slice of, I don't even know. Uh, but um, yeah, and I also at the time, I also had a contract at NBC at the Today Show and was doing design segments, you know, yeah, on Yeah, a much wider audience uh, was Which was a much wider audience. So yeah, it was, um, there was a lot going on and I was juggling a lot of things at the time, but it was good. But it was at that time and then, you know, sort of the bottom fell out, I guess you could say. Yes. Well, so so some things changed. Some things changed, yes, yes. dramatically. So the biggest thing that changed, of course, was my physical appearance, mm. which was my hair. So in, I guess, I don't remember what year it was, but it was uh, close to my 40th birthday, some somewhere between 38 and 40. Um, <laughs> I was, yeah, in within that range, yeah. my late 30s, because it was the fourth season of my of uh, of the television show. I was diagnosed with alopecia areata, which is a very common skin condition, but affects your. But who had heard of it at hair. the time? But right? yeah, I never. But you know, now I realize <laughs> yeah. how incredibly common it right. is. But at the time, I don't think I ever. You know, was certainly not paying attention to it nor aware of it until it sort of happened to me. And it sort of started out with I had gone to my hairdresser because I was going to some black tie event and going to have my hair blown out straight because I had a lot of very, very curly hair. And my hairdresser just noticed these two little tiny, like the size of a dime, um, sort of bald spots uh, kind of at the back of the sort of the nape of my neck. And, you know, I just kept thinking, like, what did I do? How did I pull out my hair or what? You know, I just kept trying to figure it out. And so I immediately went to the dermatologist. And I mean, literally, he must have diagnosed me in 15 seconds. I mean, it's that common. Mm. Uh, So he just said, oh, you've got alopecia. And uh, yeah, like, like, yeah, no big deal. No big deal at seen all. Seen it a million times. Yeah, exactly. You'll um, be fine. You'll be fine. Right. You'll be fine. And I yes. have so many of my friends from college or doctors and every friend who I told was just like, oh, that's no big deal at all. You'll be fine. You've got so much hair. You'll be fine. Right. Meanwhile, fast forward. And, you know, first it did start out kind of slowly and, and alopecia sort of typically kind of moves around your scalp. So it's like you'll have 
like one little missing patch at the back of your head. And then suddenly you'll have one at the back of your ear. And I had enough hair that I could hide it, you know, and it wasn't exactly like the comb over, but, Mm. you know, I had a lot of hair. So it's like, you know, (laughs) Uh, okay, just lose a little hair. What's the big deal? I had enough hair for five women. So, (laughs) um, and then I don't know, somehow the pace of it just accelerated and, I, you know, will never forget. I I literally was in the shower washing my hair one morning and I think we were supposed to be shooting that day and literally like the front section of my hair fell out in my hand mm. and it was just sort of like what do I do? Yeah. You know, how how do I you know, how do I leave the house? Yeah, yeah it was terrible. It was a really really tough time. And, you know, the show must go on. Right. I mean, that's sort of the, the, the lesson that I learned. You know, I wanted to believe that, you know, people, you know, liked me on the air because of all of my great design, who, you were. who I am right. on the inside yeah. <laughs> and all of my wonderful design knowledge and expertise yes. and smarts. Um, Didn't have anything to do with that beautiful a, curly it hair. It had nothing to do with that beautiful no. curly hair of mine. And once that fell out, I could not get back on the air to save my life. And it was a really dark period. And I think, you know, most people experience things that are just in life that are unexpected Mm -hmm. that you don't see coming. But at that time, I felt like I was right on the cusp of, you know, it felt like I was doing something great in the world of design. And I felt like I just had my, you know, legs knocked out from under me. So... Yeah. So it was was a devastating time. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was a devastating time. And that whole period just took a lot out of me sort of of emotionally. So I just decided I needed, you know, sort of a sabbatical, which I took and I kind of holed up in my my house upstate, my farm, you know, in upstate New York. And, and thank that's goodness kind you have of, that. Yeah. And thank yeah. goodness that I, having had that show and, and the success that I'd had in terms of my design business, you know, gave me the opportunity to, to have that. So, I mean, that's kind of where I spent the majority of my time just trying to kind of get my head right, yeah, um, you know, kind of about everything. So, yeah. 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 So you made the decision to not wear a wig. Yes. You made the decision to shave your head. Correct. You, you were uncomfortable with yeah, with wigs. Yeah, I was. I mean, they... I, I, at the end of the day, I really did feel as though if I'm going to really get through this, I'm going to have to really learn how to accept myself, yeah. you know, how I see myself in the mirror and be okay with walking out on the street, you know, despite what other people, you know, might think or might have to say. And so it, it was pretty draining um, to sort of make that decision. And I think, you know, to a lot of people outside looking in, people are like, oh, what's, you know, what's the big deal? It's not a big deal. What's a big deal? It's hair. But for, I think for women in particular, of course. you know, so much of our sort of what is considered, you know, sort of standards of beauty, of femininity, of all these things, they certainly back then had to do with you know, quote unquote, your sort of crowning glory and and your hair. And I think also particularly in the black community, you know, there's always been sort of these issues around hair. So there was just kind of an added layer to it as well. And, you know, I had just never thought that people would be so incredibly superficial or hair focused, Mm. but- Or just thrown off. Or just thrown off or just made uncomfortable. I mean- 
just so on in so many instances. So it was, it was, you know, it took a lot to sort of navigate kind of this new territory that I found myself, you know, just sort of thrust into, which all started with this, you know, tiny little bit of hair that was missing from, you know, the, the back of my head that everybody said, Oh, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. You know? And it really did spin into something of greater magnitude. It was incredibly difficult for you. You you sort of took a break for yeah. a time, yeah. and then you you came back. Yes, with with the intention of where, where was your where was your mind I when mean, you I came think, back? You know, ultimately, well, first of all, I um, you know had to come back on some level because I have to work. I don't have a trust fund. The money and, had run and out. I, and the, the money was running out from everything. So firm. I had to get back to work eventually yeah. after I had sort of licked my wounds. Um, yeah. But no, I mean, I, you know, I love design. I've always been passionate about design. That has never, ever changed or wavered in any way. So I just slowly made my way back into it. I mean, I kept sort of reminding myself that, you know, that I was not defined by that hair Mm -hmm. and that my creativity and my curiosity and my expertise in design, you know, all the experiences that I had had, everything that I had done had absolutely nothing to do with hair, having hair or not having hair. Uh, So, yeah. So I just, you know, kind of got back into the design thing and that's what I've been doing ever since. And You've shared with me that you you've been sort of shifting your design focus somewhat. Yes, more towards licensing and product and and things that you Yeah, that's correct. So I think, you know, I've always loved uh, product uh, design. And, you know, when I started my design firm, which was Sheila Bridges Design, maybe a year later, I also sort of incorporated uh, Sheila Bridges Home. And I I had a store in Hudson, Mm. New York on Warren Street. And a lot of what we had in the store were, you know, antiques, home furnishings. We sold dog things like dog beds and leashes. And, you know, there were my designs as well as, you know, other people's designs and furniture. So I've always loved, um, you know, home furnishing products. And so now I, you know, have sort of decided that I want to focus more on that. Obviously, I have uh, a particular design and brand in my Harlem Toile de Jouy, which I designed, you know, I don't know, a decade ago. That's what I was going to say. So was, uh, that, was that about 10, a ra- 10 Yeah, years ago? it's been okay. around for a while. And, you know, I feel like it's only now that people are fully it's really catching, off. catching on. Yes. Um, but it's always been around and it's been in museums and... So and explain I, for listeners sort oh, of what what the Harlem Toile sure. is so, and, and so what, yeah. so, sort of the origin uh, of it. I have always loved toile fabrics and wall coverings, and toile de jouy is just uh, you know fabric of. Jouy, which refers to Jouy en Josas, J-O-S-A-S, I guess, uh, which is very close to Versailles in France and outside of Paris. And I sort of just, you know, played with that by calling it Harlem Toile de Jouy. So historically, you know, French toiles uh, have uh, these sort of very pastoral scenes and different, you know, scenes with people frolicking kind of in the hills and <laughs> having a picnic and, uh, you know, very various things, all different types of toiles. But I guess uh, when I was um, looking for a toile for my own house, I just could not find one that I felt like spoke to me culturally. Hmm. 
And uh, so I, you know, I just kept searching and searching and then decided to sort of create one for myself. And that is how it started. It started out as a wallpaper that was just a wallpaper and a fabric that was just supposed to be for my own kitchen. And I uh, did the paper in yellow. But then when it was printed, the person who printed it at the time said, oh, wow, this is really cool. Would you, you know, consider maybe, um, you know, selling this and making this available, you know, to the trade or mm. to the public or whatever. And then, you know, subsequently the the brand has sort of grown since then. So I, I know that part of the reason behind creating the Harlem Toile was that there weren't sort of representations of what felt sort of culturally relevant for for you. So describe some of the scenes that you created for the Harlem Toile. So, yeah. So the Harlem Toile uh, has, I guess there's six vignettes sort of within the wallpaper design as well as the fabric. And sort of originally the, the idea was that the uh, vignettes were sort of based on stereotypes about African-Americans. There is a scene with two people dancing with a boom box. There's a scene with people playing basketball. There's another scene with some girls playing double dutch, you know, jumping rope. Um, for those people who don't know what double, double dutch is. Exactly. Then there's a kind of a hairdressing scene with women doing their hair. Um, then there is a picnic, which involves, dare I say, fried chicken and watermelon. <laughs> And the one that I'm in, I'm sort of outrunning my horses. There's a scene with a sort of woman running and she's kind of jumping over a log and the horses are behind her, but she's sort of outrunning the horses, which, you know, sort of plays into that stereotype uh, about sort of running fast and jumping high. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, this sort of started out for me, it was sort of poking fun at a lot of these stereotypes. But at the same time, I wanted to figure out a way to illustrate it so that it was also celebratory um, about African-American culture in terms of, um, you know, how the images sort of looked. So, for instance, I'm a big fan of you know, Kara Walker's right. work, yeah. but some people find her silhouettes to be so <laughs> disturbingly <laughs> yeah. dark yes. um, that that yeah. they don't feel like it's a celebration. I, mm. I disagree yeah. in certain ways, but, you know, this was not supposed to be that. It was supposed to to be sort of in your face, but in a in a very different way, in a in a subtler way, right. but also in a in a beautiful way as well. We're taking a quick break to invite you to visit one of Daydon's seven inspiring U.S. showrooms located in Manhattan, L.A., Dallas, Houston, Chicago, D.C., and Florida. Discover Daydon's full range of handcrafted, high-design collections for lounging, dining, poolside, and beach. With materials ranging from Daydon's revolutionary woven fiber to highest-quality teak, ceramics, upholstery, and more. Daydon creates unique atmospheres around the world. Visit www.daydon.us to learn more. That's D-E-D-O-N dot U-S. And now, back to the show. I've always um, released different limited edition products with the same design uh, of the original, but it's always been to make it more affordable for people to have kind of, uh, to sort of own, if you will, sort of, you know, art, but in the form of, you know, home furnishing products. So we used to do 
bedding, you know, sheets and pillowcases, glassware, dinner plates, you know, umbrellas. Right now we have Moroccan babouche that I yes, just had made in Marrakesh, which are, which, are, yeah. which are really fun and turned out quite well. And then, you know, I've started doing some collaborations with other companies and some licenses. And, and that's really exciting for me because, of course, I think that Harlem 12, should be and could be turned into, you know, everything from fashion to, you know, gift wrap to, you know, dinner service to furniture. So, you know, recently. Sono speakers. Yeah, Sono speakers, uh, Nordstrom <laughs> menswear. Why not? Um, and, you know, we have a few other really fun things coming out this spring that I think people uh, will be excited uh, so you've to got see some, as well. So you've got some new releases. Yeah, so, yeah, so we have some okay. new things um, happening. But I think the the Sono speaker kind of threw everybody. <laughs> anyway, I love that it's the first speaker for Sonos that they've done that, you know, looks anything like that sort of with a pattern and, you know, my toile, you know, this what I consider to be sort of iconic toile design. And I love that it's home and technology and music, you know, culture and all these things rolled into one. Well, and as you were saying earlier, part of why you created it originally was that your history, your culture wasn't right being represented, Correct. right? Yeah, which is which has been an important issue for you throughout your career. Yeah, absolutely. It always has been really important. You know, the design world's getting you know a little bit better, but there is <laughs> right. still a lot of room for growth and change, and you know, inclusivity and diversity and all those things that we're all trying to sort of work towards. I mean, none of us, you know, want to just sort of be the only one. I don't want my legacy just to be, have been about just my own work. You know, Mm. it's also about sort of bringing other people into the fold. And, uh, you know, hopefully that's, you know, that's beginning to happen. Well, so do me a favor. I know that you brought a, a recent issue of a, a European magazine, as it turns out. Yes, I did. Um, so this is the actually it's the October 2019 issue of Living Etc. Okay, Living ETC, a beautiful magazine, um, which is a beautiful magazine, and on the cover it's the love of design. The editorial director is um, Sarah Spiteri, and she wrote in this um, editor's note, which, of course, got my attention immediately. She said, last but by no means least, I'd like to announce the launch of hashtag inclusivity, etc., Uh, Much more will be revealed soon, but here is our statement of intent. The UK interiors industry does not reflect our cosmopolitan country. Product design is dominated by privileged white males, while interiors are the reserve of the elite. The campaign starts here. We are conscious that our content has not always reflected the right balance, And we are now making active steps to address this. We will no longer appear on a panel without a multicultural lineup and will weave different voices and influences into our editorial as frequently as possible. So anyway, it goes on. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, I, I love the intent of that statement. And I, you know, wonder why it is that no magazines here have sort of 
I guess, or, or any editors have sort of made that same statement about inclusion. You know, I think about all the panels and talks and various things that happen within the industry throughout the year. I think it's getting better. But, you know, really, you know, I would love to see people commit to the idea of, you know, not participating in things unless they really sort of reflect um, our, you know, diverse culture. Mm. I mean, that's kind of that's what design is is supported by. That's what informs what we do, you know. So the more diverse, the more democratic, the more thoughtful, the more interesting the dialogue becomes mm. and design becomes, you know, when you're reflecting a multicultural um, society. And, you know, I think one of the big complaints historically was, I don't know any black designers. I don't know any designers of color. And it was sort of uh, as though, you know, people were just lazy. It's not that hard to to find, you know, <laughs> notable well, designers I, of well, color. No, I mean, no, exactly. You, know, and you, you can't even imagine. now. I, I mean, I, I remember the, the team at Saturday Night Live saying, oh, well, you know, we don't know any great black comedians. Right, or, you know, right, and exactly. Like, or, and particularly women, um, yeah. you know, for Saturday Night Live. But yeah. it's just, you know, what's what does that mean? You know, black people aren't funny. I mean, I don't, yeah, I don't ever understand I, those kinds of excuses are just we we still have uh, a ways to go, but it is nice to see there, that there is a shift and things are starting to happen. I'd like to believe that a lot of the younger designers or color are having a much easier time coming up in this industry than I did because it was it was I just felt like I was constantly you know trying to bang down the door. I mean, well, so, just, I mean, you know. t- tell me, tell me a little bit about that because one of the things that, I mean, one of the reasons that you're sitting here is that you have been a highly celebrated interior right. designer for, for essentially the last generation. Right. I mean, yeah. Time Inc. referred to you as, you know, one of the greatest yeah. designers, yeah. right, in the, <laughs> the entire world. Yeah. Yes. I mean, so, I mean, you you have been at the very pinnacle of right. this, of this yeah. industry and, and celebrated yeah. as yeah. such. And yet you, of course, faced incredible challenges, yeah. being a woman, being a woman right. of color. Yeah. I mean, I just think that, you know, it, it just was not easy. I mean, I think I had to have all of the the qualifications, meaning, you know, I had to go to Brown. I had to go to Parsons School <laughs> You had Design. to have all those boxes I had to have checked. all those boxes checked. Yes. You know, now, you know, you can be a designer. You know, first of all, anybody can be a designer, uh, it seems like. And certainly um, if you look at the sort of success of, you know, people on social media mm. who have sort of called themselves um, you know, designer. Does that frustrate you a little bit? Uh, it does frustrate me a little bit. I get the fact that things are changed. They're not supposed to be the same. So, you know, holding everybody to that, you know, criteria sort of was unfair and mm. also unrealistic that I felt like I was held to. But, you know, I mean, somebody, it's got to start somewhere. Mm. That's just where the industry, you know, where the industry is. And uh, saying to somebody that I, you know, I was like, I want to be like Prince, but without the opioids, you know, like <laughs> I, you know, want to figure out, you know, how to, st- how do you stay relevant, yes. you know, in the world of design decade after decade after decade? And it's not easy. No. <laughs> let me tell you. No. So that is why I'm always kind of, you know, reinventing. That's why I'm always trying to diversify, you know, my business, whether it, you know, was to, you know, write books mm. or, you know, have a television show or have products. And 
you know, do licenses, various things, because, you know, it's important to have different, you know, sort of revenue streams. And um, it seems like such a modern concept, this multiple revenue streams is so much in the air today. Right. And yeah. yet, of course, um, you've been trying to, to yes, do that I've for decades. Do that <laughs> for, of course. Uh, to, for, for decades. Yes. Um, as as but, one has to, especially right, when they're exactly. on their own. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. But it's been very challenging. I mean, I think more than anything, I think the licensing thing was always challenging. I mean, even with a hit television show and a successful design book as uh, a woman of color, I could not get a licensing deal to save my life back then. And I think now the licensing deals are much more collaborative. I think what people are doing with other companies, I think companies realize the importance of great design and that design is global and that, you know, if you involve a designer in a project, whatever that project is going to be, it's probably going to be more successful if there's a design person involved. Particularly if there's a design person who really has original ideas. Yes. Uh, we were talking to Kate Werner recently, yeah, who, sure, who knows sure. yeah, more, yeah, more than any of us about right. licensing sure. yeah, and, and the history. And she talked about, first of all, she talked about sort of the inverse relationship often with the the Instagram following that actually many of the most successful product designers were often people you've never even heard of, That's right? That's probably didn't, true. Didn't have this sure. huge following in part because they weren't spending their time posting right, things. Exactly. They were actually out actually there working, designing, designing. Yes, yes, creating exactly. things. Yeah, it's true. Um, but that but that also more and more companies are recognizing that the, the real value comes from talented designers who have ideas and right and exactly new creative ideas. problem solving. And yes. that's at the end of the day what you know most of us do day in and day out. So in the in the new business that you're creating for your for yourself, do you want to be seen as a as a product designer sort of as well as an interior designer, are you are you juggling both? Or, I, think, I mean, yeah. Well, I'll you know, I think I will. I mean, you're continue an extraordinary to, interior designer. Well, I mean, you have thank you. Really, I mean, I the think projects are um, I will continue to do both. I think the goal is to just you know do things that I love to do. So uh, hopefully that means you know interiors, but you know, kind of the right projects mm. um, that are really enjoyable as well as, you know, product design and trying to see where things go, you know, kind of with my Harlem Twal mm. brand and try to grow that because I think that, you know, the timing for that is is right. But I think that, you know, design has just become you know, more fluid for lack of a better description. People finally realize that technology and art and fashion and music and culture and the environment, all these things, you know, are sort of part of design or combined mm. with design is seems to be kind of the direction that I think things are are moving in. And so that part to me is very exciting because it means that the opportunities in design, if it does, you know, um, sort of open up in that way, you know, are really are limitless, I guess. So I consider myself to always be a little ahead of the curve. So, you know, so it and, seems for so you. in that way, and, and a lot of times that's not, that's not really a good thing, um, uh, depending on what it is you're trying to do, but just meaning I would love to be, you know, a part of, of that wave that I think is happening, just the kind of global recognition of design and how important design is in all of our lives. What do you think the industry could be doing better? So, I mean, to, to speak to your edit letter that you shared with us and the inclusivity, I mean, what, what else could the industry as a whole be, be doing? Well, I think it's, 
tough. I think the the industry has to, you know, want to make the change. It's just too easy to do the same thing. You know, it's always worked, I think, in the past, but I'm not sure if going forward how well it's going to work. I think the industry's in sort of a very tenuous sort of position. I mean, I think, you know, obviously there are less magazines. A lot of the showrooms that have been traditionally, you know, just open to the trade are now open for retail. Mm. And so... Or might have to move that way. Or or might have to move that way. And I suspect probably will. To me, one of the, you know, obvious things uh, that everybody should be doing, you know, from manufacturers from the to the editorial end is, you know, again, about looking outside of the sort of usual suspects to help create, you know, kind of the the future of design, you know, collaborating with people who don't necessarily look like you. Mm. I think that people have to take a a long and hard look at kind of how they exist within the design world and the kind of opportunities that they're creating for other people and what that means. I mean, design is global. You know, what about design projects in Africa and in Brazil? And in, you know, there's so much of the world that just every time I open a magazine, I just, you know, I just don't feel like I, I really see that. You know, I go to showrooms and I look at fabric after fabric after fabric and so many of them kind of just look the same. Mm. You know, people are hungry for it. And I think that, um, you know, everybody's got to make an effort. As you said earlier, people have to recognize the need for this for this big shift and, and, and change. And, right. And to sort of acknowledge that things haven't been very inclusive, right. particularly right. in the high end of and our the high, industry. Yeah, particularly in the high end of the, which is the a industry. Pretty rarefied little little it world. Is, yeah, you have to. We have to remind ourselves that yes. that's the case. Yes. Well, so hopefully we can start making some some steps. I hope so. Toward, towards I, progress there. A lot so. of it is probably talking about it and and continuing to remind people right. and and raising the awareness. But it does get a little exhausting to always be reminding people. You of should it. not have to solve this problem. And I should I, not I have to solve. This problem. No. Uh, but no. yeah, I mean, you know, I get tired of, you know, speaking on design panels about diversity or about race. You know, I want to speak on the design panel about luxury or yes. about color or about, yes. you know, all the things that I am qualified to speak about while I might be qualified to speak about, you know, race too. Right. It's exhausting to to always have to talk about this instead of just talking about how much we love design. Yeah. And uh, as you say, that all of that shouldn't have to be called out, and, correct? And you shouldn't be forced to have these these kinds of conversations. Um, so the whole community has to come together to really make this uh, this change. And I I hope that they that they will. And as you say, magazines could get behind this in a big way and play a big role. There are sure. fewer of them, but maybe yeah. they have even bigger voices as That's a result true. of there being fewer of them. And uh, I think many editors would would get on board with this. Yeah, and, I hope so. And and hopefully they they will, especially after hearing this. I feel like people are going to jump to it. Oh, let's right? hope so. Yeah. <laughs> well, Sheila, thank you so much for coming in and spending time with us. Well, thank you for having me. This has been fun. Thank you again for listening. If you're enjoying these conversations, I hope you'll consider sharing the podcast with a friend or heading over to the iTunes store to leave us a review. It helps others to discover our show. We love your feedback. Please send us your thoughts at podcast at businessofhome.com. 
Our show was produced by Fred Nicolaus and Lauren Pirelli and edited by Nina Pollock. I'm Dennis Scully. We'll see you next week.